This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Ranji Nagaswamy. She has quite the storied background as both a chief investment officer and a chief executive officer at finance firms. Uh, she started out at U- UBS Asset Management. She ended up joining Sanford Bernstein. Uh, ultimately, she finds herself at the City of New York's Pension and Retirement Systems uh, as chief investment officer. She's had the, the role of chief investment officer uh, across numerous firms. And really, this is a if you're at all interested in asset allocation and thinking about different types of asset classes, be they uh, sources of beta, sources of alpha, sources of non-correlated uh, alternative returns. Uh, this is going to be the conversation for you. Uh, we really, she does a really nice job of covering wonky subjects, but making it really understandable for the layperson. We really don't go too deep into the weeds on a lot of the things we discuss. With no further ado, here is my conversation with Ranji Nagaswamy. My special guest today is Ranji Nagaswamy. She has a stellar resume filled with all of the best firms on Wall Street and in finance. She began at UBS uh, in the asset management division before she joined Sanford Bernstein, eventually rising to become chief investment officer of Alliance Bernstein Investments. From 2010 to 2012, she served as the chief investment advisor for the city of New York's pension and retirement systems. She has held senior positions at Bridgewater Associates, Corthair Capital, and she is currently chief executive officer of Hurdle Callahan, Ranji Nagaswamy, Welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So I've been looking forward to having you here for a while because you have a really fascinating background and and quite a financial services resume. Let's start with UBS. What what brought you to UBS and, and what did you learn there? So I got to UBS right after business school. I was in the fixed income division. Having been a quant, a bit of a self-professed geek all my life uh, with an accounting and mathematical background. It was not not a surprise that I started out at the bottom of the investment department in fixed income as a quantitative analyst. And over the 10 years, from the time I started to the time I ran the entire department, uh, globally running fixed income for UBS Asset Management, I wore many hats. In the late 1980s, in 1989, during the SNL crisis, I was asked to help with the high-yield portfolios, so being an accounting Undergrad and understanding financial statements, I jumped right into high yield in the middle of that chaos. In 1994, uh, when the Fed started to tighten, I was asked to help with the mortgage-backed securities portfolios. Mm -hmm. So all of that negative convexity in a tightening cycle, mortgages were the worst performer in in the period thereafter. So essentially, a career of jumping into things that were about on their backs, as cheap as they could get, being a problem solver, and eventually being asked to run the team uh, in the mid to late 90s. Let's move to Sanford C. Bernstein, which eventually became Alliance Bernstein. You were there pretty much in the beginning of the financial crisis, weren't you? 
I was there when value was in its nadir. Mm-hmm. Uh, 98, 99, uh, no one was a value investor. Remember, Every- people were actually saying, oh, this Warren Buffett guy, he's lost it. Absolutely. Value investing is dead. That was the headline. And having been a value investor in fixed income all my life, and by the way, in 96, while I was at UBS, the firm was bought by Swiss Bank and Gary Brinson came into my life, a mm-hmm. legendary value investor and a thinker about global asset allocation. Mm-hmm. And that has served me extremely well, that training with Gary Brinson and Brinson Partners. Went to Bernstein because, like me, they were still believers that value investing would work someday. Mm-hmm. Was the fifth person in the history of Bernstein to be brought in as a partner. And Shortly after I joined, six months later, the firm was sold to Alliance Capital. In that six-month period, I had worked very closely with Lou Sanders and Marilyn Fiedak, who are, of course, some of the greatest value equity investors of all time. And upon that, when that transaction happened, I said, I did not come here to join Alliance. I really wanted to stay with Bernstein. And I was persuaded to join the equity team. Hmm. And so it's a very unorthodox move from fixed income to equities. Less unorthodox than you would imagine. On the research side, a lot of the best equity researchers I know all started out as fixed income uh, researchers. You know, I like to think that once, if you had your fundamental training in fixed income, you understand capital structure, you understand term structure, and you understand risk at a far more granular level than most equity investors do. Absolutely. And so that the next five years of my life were terrific. I loved equity investing. If you can remember that time, 2000 to 2004, all of the darlings of the high yield market became value opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so I tremendously enjoyed and think back fondly to my time in the value equities team at Bernstein. Huh. So you eventually rise to chief investment officer uh, of... Um, Alliance Bernstein, what was that like? So this was the $180 billion retail mutual Mm -hmm. fund division uh, that Bernstein actually inherited. It was an Alliance capital business. And we, I joined it at a very troubled time in its history. Uh, Lou Sanders, the CEO of Bernstein, had just asked the top 10 people to leave the firm in the wake of an SEC settlement and a crisis. And this was a transformation. Uh, What was needed was to completely, fundamentally rethink the firm's approach to the retail investor. And what I really started with was how do retail investors behave? We embraced the work of behavioral economists like Daniel Kahneman, who had always been a very big uh, influence on the Bernstein value investing philosophy. So the idea of investors being myopically loss averse, the idea that investors were much more likely to believe something that they heard repeatedly and most recently, Mm -hmm. recency bias, confirmation bias. All of that went into the design of how we restructured the mutual fund division. Essentially, over the next four years, we went from 55 mutual funds, multiple tech funds, biotech funds, to really thinking about what are the sources of return and risk that every investor should own. And I remember making a presentation to Morningstar where I said, we have 55 funds today, investors need about a dozen. And that's exactly what we did. We took the mutual fund lineup down from 55 to 13. Now, what we also did 
was recognized that because investors were far worse off when you looked at returns from a dollar-weighted basis than a time-weighted basis, asset allocation strategies were probably the single best response to human behavior. Mm -hmm. Barry, I've often said that buy low, sell high are the foremost abused words in the investment business. And the answer to that is asset allocation portfolios. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Ranji Nagaswamy discussing running a values-based firm in a rules-based industry. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ranji Nagaswamy. She was at UBS and Sanford Bernstein before she went on to serve as chief investment advisor to the New York City pension system. So you're now doing something a little different than what you've done previously. Tell us a little bit about Hurdle Callahan and how you found your way to this company. You know, this role as CEO of one of the greatest firms, I think, in the investment business, um, Hurdle Callahan, a pioneer in the outsourced chief investment officer part of our industry. Define what that is for the layperson who may not be familiar with it. Think about if you are an endowment, a foundation, or a family, wouldn't you like to have someone by your side as as if they were your internal chief investment officer? Mm-hmm. Only they bring the scale and the expertise and the depth of a much larger firm. If you were a $50 million family or a $200 million endowment of a middle, Midwestern educational institution. Mm-hmm. It is impossible for you to create the returns, the access to managers, the access to thinking about markets that a multi-billion dollar endowment is able to do. In, in other words, the infrastructure, the hiring, the staffing, the resources of a giant institution is made available to smaller shops, family offices, Pension funds, et cetera? Exactly. Not just the operational and administrative infrastructure, but the investment capability, the investment access, and the ability to anal- to access world-class managers, but at much lower fees. If a $200 million institution went to get a manager, they would pay their highest fee level. Mm-hmm. But if we are investing hundreds of billions in the, with this investor, we will get a much lower fee. So it is a far more scalable, cost-efficient model to get best thinking about markets into these smaller portfolios. How did you find your way to this firm? And this is really different than what you've done as a CIO for a specific company. Now you're a CIO for many firms. We see the entire investment industry as playing a very essential role for mm-hmm. clients. But most firms are, if you, if you take a, the analogy from the healthcare industry, most firms are like the large pharmaceutical companies or the drug manufacturers playing a vital role, spending a lot of time on a particular disease or a particular product to help with the particular disease. We see ourselves far more at Hurdle Callahan as the Mayo Clinic. 
We want to serve the client. We want someone to come in with an issue and a, tr- and a problem or a, something to solve, something they need help with in investing. And we access the product providers, but we are the ones that's doing the diagnosis. We mm-hmm. are understanding the client's fact pattern. We are meeting the client where they are. What do I mean by that? What is your risk tolerance, Barry? doesn't matter what the rest of the world does. How much liquidity do you need? What does your institution want from this portfolio? And we bring all of the products together in a way that makes sense for this particular client. Now, there are a number of CIO outsourcing firms in the world. How do you fit into that firmament? How large have you guys become? And, and how long has uh, Hurdle Callahan been around? 30 years ago at this point, when John Hurdle and his, and his partner went on to form Hurdle Callahan, no one had thought about the words outsourced CIO. David Swenson was not a household name. The endowment model was not known. A total solution with uncorrelated sources of return were not known. Having a single solution, taking 100% of a client's money, Mm -hmm. none of those things were even in the industry lexicon. So 30 years later, it is not a surprise that we are one of the largest still privately held, standalone, pure play, outsourced chief investment officers. Our business model is one of the most intriguing things about that that attracted me to the firm. We are conflict-free. This idea, we use our scale. We are over 20 billion in client assets today. Very few CIOs have managed when they have gone to the outsource model to scale up to that size. That allows us to negotiate fees for our clients and manage our clients' costs down. So what's the difference between managing money as a outsource CIO and what you did, um, let's use Alliance Bernstein on the retail level, how do those two compare? So the first, of course, is in retail or in any product shop, which which populates a client port, client's portfolio with only their products. Mm-hmm. There's an inherent conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. We don't have that. We manage none of the money ourselves. We pull the asset allocation together to meet a client's needs and then go out. We are completely agnostic whether we would buy passive or active. When mm-hmm. we invest in active, how much is in liquid versus illiquid? We, we have this for the Hurdle Callahan innovated very early in the factor investing space. What is now popular and very well known 10 years ago was not at all known. And yet we recognized that active managers in, in many, many active manager portfolios, all we were getting was factor beta exposure sure. to a particular risk and paying active fees for it. So we designed our own portfolios, which are managed by a third party, but with our de- our design and our our innovation to design these portfolios to play a pretty central part of our clients' equity exposures. So the way I would describe it is we have been a firm that has stood for innovation in, in investing. 
We are deeply valuation focused. Our entire philosophy, which was a big part of the attraction. So other than the business model, which is conflict-free and uses scale to manage costs and do provide our service at reasonable fees, the valuation philosophy was a tremendous alignment of the way I think about investing and the way Hurdle Callahan has always thought about investing. To put it simply, buying assets, whether in equities or fixed income, large or small, international or U.S., at, at, at the cheapest prices, at the, at the most reasonable valuation level, and avoiding them or selling them when they become expensive over long time horizons, five to seven year horizons, is by far the soundest way to invest. And this firm has stuck to its discipline over 30-year period, so this is a very proven firm in terms of using that valuation framework for clients. Let's talk a little bit about the role of women in finance. I have made an effort to bring more women on the show, and it's not easy to find people um, to do that because it really is so disproportionately, uh, finance is so disproportionately a male-dominated field. That, there seems to be signs, though, that that's changing. How, how do you perceive what's going on in the industry in terms of uh, a little better gender ratio than, than finance has had for a long time? I hope you are right. I hope things are changing, but the data would not suggest that that is really true really? In, a very, in, in any kind of systematic way. Um, I will tell you that I see it as one of my personal missions in life to make sure that Hurdle Callahan has not just a gender-balanced workforce, but a balanced workforce, period. And so that really means having people from all sorts of backgrounds at the table reflecting our clients, reflecting the world we live in, and honestly reflecting the best possible pool of talent. And the data suggests the more diverse uh, the head of a company is, the better the returns are, the better the performance is. That's, exact, that's exactly the data, right? And so why, why would you not design? But for me, this comes to process design. In our own recruitment, we hired uh, an extraordinary talent from Expedia as our chief human resources officer. And Sarah, our, our CHRO, has brought a whole way of thinking about the inputs that drive recruiting that lead to outputs, which is a balanced workforce. And the inputs are, how do we write the job description? How do we insist a recruiter call the, the, the pool of talent? If you put your job posting on LinkedIn, you're gonna get hundreds of hits. Mm -hmm. how, who are the 10 people that you will narrow that down to? What's the gender balance? If nine out of 10 are a certain group, whatever group that is, you're likely to hire someone right. out of that group. So we have examined our entire recruitment process from the job description to the slate of candidates to who does the interview. If a candidate of diverse background, opinion, angle of approach, or uh, a gender, ethnicity meets people like them, they are far more likely to be attracted to that firm. Now, we are very privileged that almost half of the senior team at the firm at Hurdle Callahan are women. In fact, on your executive team, you have five women. Yes. Which is, in finance, relatively unusual. That leads to the question, what is taking the rest of Wall Street so long to catch up with some of the smaller, more nimble firms 
who've been more aggressive in this space? Look, I, I generally believe that unconscious bias is one of the most relevant biases when it comes to answering your question. And I also believe that leadership has not made it enough of a priority. I am really struck in all of my thinking about my own career and the trajectory of, and the arc of my life, how much the choices I have made have been deliberate and have taken a lot of work to kind of create a culture and an environment that leads to certain behavior and leads to certain outcomes. And my fear is it's really about the culture of the firm and the leaders at the top who have, whether they've, they, they pay lip service to this, but have not created the processes and the commitment that this would take. The academic data shows that women are less emotional, they make better decisions, and they have better performance as portfolio managers. So that raises the question, why aren't more organizations embracing that? Is it simply a question of a bad hiring process? I think it's it goes back to culture. And I really believe that it's not just a hiring process issue because this talent comes in the door. There are many, many women Today, you look at the college graduate numbers mm -hmm. and ratios, and there are many women entering the workforce, but we lose them along the way. Hmm. And I wonder, and, and my belief has often, has, has really been that it is about the culture of a firm and how the, the workforce is managed and treated as it matures within a company. Let's talk a little bit about the way you approach asset management. You, you mentioned asset allocation earlier. Tell us about how you begin the process of putting together a diversified portfolio. You know, before I jump into the portfolio construction piece, uh, one of the real reasons I think asset management is a gem of an industry in society is because of what it means for the average investor. Mm -hmm. Asset management is, is the part of finance that really allows investors to take their hard-earned savings and turn them into very productive capital. And pooling of assets, the first mutual fund, the way we now invest and take it for granted, but was so novel in the last 40 years, has really been a tremendous innovation in finance that has not only brought capital to industry and create businesses, but has propelled investors by making their savings far more productive than it would have been had it been sitting in gold or cash. Mm -hmm. So I come back to this because the themes of what the approach we take to asset management is really to remember that as an outsourced chief investment officer, we are representing the owners of capital. We, our job is to t take our investment acumen, our, our people, our investment philosophy, our process, and without ever losing sight that we are here to help these savers use their capital to meet their life needs, whether it's an organization, an endowment that has a mission, a college that wants to be more tuition-free and offer more discounts, or a family philanthropy that seeks to change its role in society. We really are here to bring our investment acumen to a more productive use in society. Please. So, so let me ask you a question. Every day I pick up the Wall Street Journal, I open it up, and today there's an article about stocks being overvalued, and yesterday was an article 
that bonds are overvalued, and last week was an uh, was an article that venture capital is overvalued. It seems that wherever you look, there are lots of claims that all assets are overvalued. What? How do you respond to that? And well, how do you operate in that sort of environment? Well, we have come a long way from March 2009 when the exact opposite was true, when mm-hmm. all assets were cheap, were priced very, very cheaply. We've had a long bull run in the global risk asset classes, mm-hmm. fueled by a Fed, by a U.S. Fed and global central banks that have kept interest rates low for a very long period to be sure we were out of what was a potentially generationally uh, unnerving crisis going back. That has gone on for a really long time. And at this point, all risky assets appear to be fully valued and some indeed are overvalued. The most overvalued parts of the markets are indeed the bond market, and mm-hmm. in particular the risk-free parts of the bond market. Even meaning though treasuries, meaning and- treasuries, although credit is now appearing quite fully valued to us as well. Mm-hmm. The way we think about valuation is first relative to history, but also relative to other asset classes that are available in the marketplace. And finally, relative to level of growth and, and prospects for earnings and returns going forward. So, so it's historical, it's relative to other uh, opportunities, and it's relative to the, the economic, economic environment. environment. Mm-hmm. And, and when we look at the first two, assets are quite overvalued. But when you look at the macro environment, Corporate earnings are still strong. Growth is not as strong as it has been in some periods in the past, but we seem to be doing just fine. Inflation is subdued. So we appear to be prolonging this Goldilocks scenario of stable growth, low inflation, and corporate earnings have been robust earnings revisions in the US going forward looking forward for the next 5 months next 12 months US earnings revisions are still positive up about 5% but outside the US earnings revisions are in the double digits so the real story is Me- meaning Europe emerging markets Asia exactly right and so the real story is today equities look attractive to bonds And within equities, the most interesting parts of the world are non-U.S. developed markets, particularly Europe, and the emerging markets. Now, all of these markets have done really well in the last year to date, in 2017, but we think that there is still room for further growth, further improvement in earnings prospects. So we are not yet pulling the reins in, but we are remaining very cautious. In particular, in bond markets, we are very cautious in our client portfolio. When I look back at the past 10 years of performance, you said we've had a robust year in Europe and emerging markets, but on a 10-year basis, they've really done practically nothing, haven't they? Absolutely right. So look, the U.S. was easily the most decisive in terms of coming out of the crisis. Big response, very strong um, uh, somewhat of a, uh, a modest fiscal response, but a very strong monetary response, certainly before Europe or Japan started to engage in it. When they were in denial, remember Geithner mm-hmm. flying over to Europe saying, you guys need to do this. And so late to the game, quantitative easing, 
now obviously the mantra around the world. So we were, we un, it, it seemed like our policymakers understood the depths of what we were dealing with and really opened up both the Fed's balance sheet, the uh, tried to get risk back into the markets. And today, 10 years later, we really have potentially the excess of that. So let, let's talk about bond markets since you brought that up. Wherever you look, you mentioned risk-free treasuries, corporates, pretty much across the whole credit and duration curves. Everything looks somewhat expensive in bond world. What's a fixed income investor to do? We have had a high yield and cash barbell on in our portfolios. Now, admittedly, the cash piece of this has been an expensive uh, safety measure for our portfolios. And we've also held on to hedge funds. So we have been invested in a barbell in fixed income, thinking that as the Fed tightened, the higher quality, particularly the treasuries, would be would underperform. And that while that has begun to happen in the last year, um, over the course of the last three or four years, we have been our, our cautiousness has allowed us, by the way, to also be overweighted in equities, which has worked in an overall sense for client portfolios. But we have been very reluctant investors in treasuries. So some people some people have suggested um, having REITs or MLPs or something else that is high yielding to supplement their their high yield bonds. How do you look at those asset classes relative to? cash and, and high yield. So we did have a pretty significant uh, view on commodities that mm-hmm. we tempered uh, in the middle of last year or in the fall of last year. So we have held uh, commodity stocks. Uh, we shifted from the commodities themselves to the stocks and in our taxable client portfolios held MLPs. But we now have had a pretty negative view on energy overall for the last year. So we have gone back to neutral, although we still have about a 4 to 6% weight in those areas. Uh, in REITs, we were believers that that market was pretty fully valued. And so we have not been overweight REITs for quite some time. So you've been gone from Bernstein for a good couple of years. Uh, There's obviously been this huge debate about active versus passive. Um, Vanguard likes to describe it as high high cost versus low cost. What what goes through your mind when you see a research paper from Bernstein (laughs) that says indexing is the new Marxism? Yes, yes. Uh, a little bit of sympathy for the view, but not much sympathy for the journalism, journalistic excess uh, mm-hmm. that that implies. Um, so let me let me step back and say the following: We are agnostic as to passive and active. We believe that there is a time and place mm-hmm. for passive, and there is a time and place for active. Today, we are very interested in active. So if you look at our U.S. equity portfolios, 60% of our portfolios are some combination of passive and factor-based, which mm-hmm. is near low cost, if you would, right? Mm-hmm. But today, we really believe we're getting quite interested in the active managers who have been on their backs. All active managers have massively underperformed in the wake of the charging bull market. Now we are beginning to get interested. We think that in a market where there is no, where all stocks are highly correlated, you do not get paid for picking stock A or stock B. So now we are beginning as a firm to get more interested in active, but just bear in mind, we are agnostic. We do not come out with a 
point of view that you should only be passive or only be active. We have been speaking with Ranji Nagaswamy. She is currently the chief executive officer of Hurdle Callahan. Be sure and check out all of our podcast extras where we keep the tape running and continue chatting about all things investing. Uh, You can find the rest of the 150 or so podcasts in this series wherever fine podcasts are sold. We love your feedback and suggestions. Be sure to write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Ranji, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for quite some time. Um, let's let's jump back to a couple of questions that I didn't get to during the broadcast portion. Uh, tell me about uh, what you've done in the past with the Aspen Institute and, and the new project that you've had underway with them for, for a while now. So, Barry, I was honored to be selected and nominated as a Aspen Fellow in the Henry Crown Fellowship Program at the Institute. Aspen really is an institute that was created in the aftermath of two world wars and the Great Depression Mm -hmm. to ask leaders in business, what is your responsibility for building the good society? And in the aftermath Hmm. of all of that destruction, the question was quite simply, where were the business leaders? And what is the role of the private sector in really building and shaping the good society? So using readings that are time-tested, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Locke, Hume, we really get to fundamental notions of as leaders in society, How do we trade off liberty and equality, efficiency and community? What are the choices we make? How do you as a successful business person walk in the world? And I was nominated to this fellowship by the dean of the Yale School of Management, a good friend, uh, in 2005. At a time when I was leading Alliance Bernstein's mutual fund division through a transformation post a pretty significant self-inflicted crisis at the firm or in that division of the firm. And I was brought in as part of a management team to help turn that division around. And as we confronted business practices, as we confronted our role with retail investors who know so little about the investments we were buying, all of the principles of what am I here to do as a leader, I'm here to actually be a fiduciary in its fullest sense of the word, to actually take decisions and be a steward of my my client's capital. So this began a journey for me now, obviously over a dozen years ago, into my leadership values, my leadership style. In 2010, I remember so clearly when I was sitting in Mayor Bloomberg's administration, as you've noted, as his chief investment advisor in the third term of the Bloomberg uh, mayoralty. Uh, This role, by the way, in the Bloomberg administration was created to help the city with what had become an acute financial and budgetary crisis. Pension expenditure had gone from 1% of the budget to 12% of the budget, really crowding out 
investment in schools, roads, uh, and, and healthcare, and many other things. And I was asked to come in and really help the administration think through this issue, and as Mike said, fix it, which of course is easier said than done. But as I was sitting in an investment committee meeting and watching the administration at odds with the unions and the administration and the unions completely at odds with Wall Street, remember two years following the great financial crisis, our uh, our city's uh, pensions are at their lowest point. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the risk that had been taken in this portfolio and equities had, had devastating effects for the funded status of the pension portfolios. What I recognized is that we needed to bring the ecosystem of finance into a conversation about the role of finance in society. Mm-hmm. And this was not something that I thought we should leave to our regulators. You know, it's very easy when we look back on the crisis to say, you know, yeah, 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 Geithner and Bernanke were great, but they should have known. They created the rules that they looked the other way when, when finance began to fail. Where were the business leaders? Where were the leaders in finance who were saying, you know what, 30 to 1 leverage is pernicious to the system. And how can we put the entire system at this kind of risk? If you recall, there were a handful of people that were raising those questions, and everybody looked at them like they were crazy. What You know, the market's going up. Everything is good. This is working. Why get in the way? In fact, Green, then Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan famously said when someone had, it might have even been uh, Edward Gromlich was a Fed governor, hey, you have all these crazy mortgages, subprime mortgages. We Greenspan's response was, we don't want to mess around with the financial innovators. What do you do when everybody is looking the other way and the train is coming down the tracks and, and people are pretending it's not coming. But the key to your statement is everybody. We were all complicit. And the question we ask in the Aspen in the Aspen Leadership Program is, what about you? What are you going to do about this issue? And so follow on, and a few years later, it occurs to me that finance needs a group of leaders who will step up and accept responsibility for their role in reconnecting finance and society. And it is this set of values that leads me and a group of people at the Aspen Institute to founding something called the Aspen Finance Leaders Fellowship. We have just announced our second class of leaders. Every year we gather about 22 people around the table. So this is the long game. This is saying that in 10 years we'll have over 200 leaders in finance around the world selected from across the financial ecosystem, savers of capital, users of capital, intermediaries, and stewards, and the regulators, in a conversation first about their personal leadership and their personal responsibility in whatever bully pulpit they have and are whatever role they play in, in, and these are highly successful people in their firms and in the industry. Coming together then, in using a project to really define how they want to connect finance and society. Now, this is about Aspen, and your question was about Aspen, and this, of course, is my life's legacy. I consider this my Ely Mossonary commitment. My husband and I are really committed to using this and, and, and believing and investing in this for the next 20 to 30 years, whatever it takes. 
But to come full circle with this to your earlier question about Hurdle Callahan, in my very first conversation with John Hurdle, one of the real reasons we hit it off was because we both have spent our lives, in his case, building a highly successful business model, outsourced chief investment officer, really as an innovator and a pioneer in finance, creating a model that never existed, mm -hmm. that puts the client at its center and brings our capability to the client. And in my case, I say giving speeches and creating this fellowship, and hands down, John wins, because building a great business which you know t stands the test of time and market cycles is by far a stronger way to make a statement. So this shared value about what finance can do in society is why I joined Hurdle Callahan and why 95 of us in a suburb of Philadelphia today are really believing that this is the business model for the future of the asset management industry. But back to Aspen Institute, you uh, the parallel I'm thinking of is someone endows a chair at a university. Uh, there was a project you've been working on at Aspen more specifically, which is the Finance Leaders Fellowship. That's so what that's what the name of it in is. In extending, yes, in extending the Henry Crown Fellowship or the fellowship model at Aspen mm -hmm. to uh, to the finance industry, my project has really been to start this conversation. And, and how many years into this are we now? So we just announced our second class. We've been working on it for five years. Wow. Uh, but this is one of the 15 fellowship programs at the Aspen Institute. That, that, that's quite fascinating. Let, let's talk about another fascinating place you worked. You held a, a fairly senior position at Bridgewater Associates, run by Ray Dalio and company. What was that experience like? Uh, first, that was a brief experience, okay. um, and so not something, not not a place where I spent a lot of time. Uh, Bridgewater is a fascinating institution because, first, of how they think about markets and investing. Mm -hmm. This is one of the purest intellectual exercises in investing, I think, in the world. Really, that's With, quite quite a statement. It uh, it really is quite a statement. And what I took away from my brief time there was really how to think about markets, how to think about risk. Uh, I fundamentally broadened and deepened my understanding of risk in our that are embedded in our portfolios and how people really ignore diversification from an environmental risk perspective to their own peril. But equally, I brought uh, what I have brought to Hurdle Callahan and other endeavors is the culture piece. And the culture piece in its most benign form, which is transparency, uh, employee engagement, and really focusing on excellence, how to keep getting better at getting better. They, that's really interesting. They, they describe themselves as having radical transparency. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Look, I, as I just said, Bridgewater is a singular culture. And singular. Singular. And mm -hmm. that is unlike, in other words, unlike anything else. <laughs> and it is, for the right person, it, it, it is a glorious firm. But I would say that for me, the principles that have endured, including transparency and excellence, are really the hallmarks of my time there. Interesting. You, you mentioned at Hurdle, you guys, um, you guys. Just, it's, I've always used <laughs> that phrase. Can yes. I tell you, I've always used that phrase as a gender neutral phrase. It's like you collective guys, meaning people in the room. But given our earlier conversation, <laughs> no. it, it stands out like a, so, a sore thumb. You folks at Hurdle Callahan, you put money into 
venture capitals, private equity, and um, hedge funds, as well as uh, indexing and factor models, et cetera. What's the process like to select any of the alternative investments, hedge funds, venture capital, private equity? I think the average investor is both fascinated by the group and somewhat overwhelmed by the personalities, the process, the dollar figures, because they're always uh, so outsized, the compensation is so outsized. What is your process like when you're trying to figure out if a half a billion dollar endowment says, look, we're just looking for something simple. Maybe we want X percent of our portfolio in alternatives. How do you approach that? So once we have the conversation with the client about their risk tolerance and their liquidity needs, it's very right. important to do the scenario analysis to say, if we had a great financial crisis again, your illiquid portfolio will double because you will because of the right. the market reaction. So that was a lesson learned, right? Everything so we, else will get smaller, and suddenly this, this there's no this, mark to market exactly, necessarily. and and this and you can't get out. So we have to be. We, we have, but once we've done all that, and that planning piece, by the way, is a huge sure. part of what an outsourced CIO does, much as that's exactly what an internal chief investment officer mm -hmm. would do. But once we get to that and we've decided on an allocation, first, a couple of things about our business model. We are not a fund of funds. We have no layers of fees. So we are building our sleeves, venture capital, private equity, hedge funds, not to make it available in the marketplace. No one can buy those services from us if they are not in our overall full, solution. Full client. Right? So we are completely aligned, just as David Swenson would not get paid more or less if he was investing right. or not investing in hedge funds, as an example. So that's the model, and we are very pure in that way. But within, uh, within uh, these asset classes, we only invest in them to the extent that they're additive to what we can get cheaply in public markets beta. Mm. So by definition, the costs matter greatly because it's all net of fees that we care about. Right. But the correlation to the rest of the portfolio becomes a very significant part of the exercise. So that suggests more venture capital and private equity than hedge funds, or is that just my bias revealing itself? No, it, look, it it, the answer will depend on the five to 10 year horizon that we see for each of these asset classes and what's going the, on. The, re the reason I ask that is, Except for very, very specialized types of hedge funds like risk arb or something that's really very non-correlated, most of the hedge funds, there are 11,000 hedge funds out there. Most of them seem to be fairly correlated to the equity markets. Fair, fair statement? Very fair statement. And so we do analytical work up front so that we don't pay for passive beta or mm -hmm. what we call structural beta. Structural beta is, for example, merger arbitrage, where in fact, you could have an entire basket where you go long the acquired company and short the acquiring company. Mm -hmm. That's structural beta. It's, it's related to a certain uh, part of the market structure or, 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 a, or a way of looking at the world. We don't want to pay overpay for that. What we really want to be able to isolate is that idiosyncratic skill. And then what we want to pay for is something that moves very differently than the rest of our portfolio. So the portfolio construction for us is, is deeply focused on what are the strategies that the underlying managers are employing to create value? And is that 
reliable, sustainable, consistent, then we are willing to invest. So it's a very high bar. It's a deep research process. And it truly is to end up with a portfolio where those illiquid buckets, other than capturing the illiquidity risk premia, also give us something that's very different than what we can do in public markets. So it's it's really a very different set of analytics and a very different research process with the alternatives than it is with the rest of your asset allocation. I'd put it this way. There is a beta decision that needs to be made, and that's our valuation framework. Mm -hmm. But when we get into active management, whether in the public long-only space, hedge fund space, or private equity, our research process is the same. It's really who are the people? What are their investment beliefs? What are their time-tested ways of investing? And can we gain the confidence from our due diligence, our research, riding shotgun as these people drive around and make their investment decisions and look at their investments, understand how their investment committee works. So we get very granular into people and process at our managers, whether they're long only active or, uh, un, uh, or, or in, the, in the private markets. The beta process is what's different because that is really driven by our valuation framework, which is based on normalized earnings uh, going into the future. Th that's quite fascinating. So I know I only have you here for a, a finite amount of time. Let's jump into some of our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Let, let's start, um, what's the most interesting thing people don't know about your background? Well, look, uh, I guess the way I'd answer that is uh, the arc of my life, um, really from my roots, uh, very humble beginnings on the dusty suburbs of a very industrialized town in India um, mm -hmm. to the audacity of starting a world class, starting at a world class business school at the age of 20. And I think to this date, being the youngest person ever admitted to the Yale School of Management. Um, to really moving into my roles in the asset management industry, always marrying, by the way, something else people don't know about me is I spent 14 years as a classically trained dancer growing oh, up in really? India. Huh. And from my perspective, the creative side of me, the conceptual creative side married to a very hyper-rational, pragmatic side is really been the, the, the way I walk in the world that has made me different as a leader as a thinker and as a doer. Huh, and so it's all of that, which the arc, what that arc traces, I think for me to Barry is a value system. And the value system is really centered on confident humility, to have the confidence in oneself to achieve difficult things, to take on difficult things. But a fundamental humility with my background that would have made my success against all odds that mm -hmm. you know to think that I could come from where I did to to the success and to the to the engagement that I have today in the world um, for me it's that entire piece of the arc that is perhaps not as known huh. kind of kind of fascinating that to even imagine that you can merge creative arts like dancing with fundamental, work like accounting and, and statistics. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of your early mentors. Tell me some of the people who helped guide your career along its way. 
So I would always start with my dad, who every morning when he left for work, looked at something in the newspaper and reminded me that we would be debating it tonight. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up debating my dad for, you know, through high school and college about politics and current affairs. But really, coming to the business side of it, um, I have been extraordinarily privileged in finding, seeking out, and working with some very special mentors. Uh, Bert Malkiel was my faculty advisor at Yale mm-hmm. and took an interest in me and guided me throughout the recruiting process, guided me to asset management, and really encouraged me in ways that were uh, very special for someone who was 20 and 21 and trying to figure out the rest of the world. Uh, Gary Brinson, who came into my life in the mid-90s when Swiss Bank bought UBS, and I started working with Brinson Part- what was Brinson Partners, um, really driving uh, from the equity side my valuation discipline, but bringing global asset allocation into my thinking and, and something that I began to participate in. But perhaps the most formative mentor for me, uh, Lou Sanders at Bernstein. Uh, Lou has been... Uh, a role model, a guide, a colleague, a friend. Um, And his commitment to valuation and a value investment philosophy, I remember the stories told in uh, 98 and 99 when, you know, some of our, our clients began to lose confidence. Remember, value was dead. And Lou said, listen, our clients believe we will simply need to understand how to manage a smaller firm never giving up on mm. the valuation philosophy, building Bernstein into the juggernaut that it became in the, two, in the 2000s. And to this day, one of the most, I always want to know what Lou thinks about the world and capital markets. Uh, I remember the Bernstein research notes that came out in the late 90s, second to none. They yes. were really absolutely top notch. Um, let's talk about investors. What What investors influence the way you think about the world? Without a doubt, Lou and Gary Brinson. Mm -hmm. uh, But I would also add, um, David Swenson has played an extraordinary role in my thinking about time horizon, in my thinking about governance and the role. You know, one of the things, particularly as it relates both to our institutional as well as our family clients, it's Yes, there is alpha from your investment policy. Yes, there is alpha from managers' selection. But people underestimate the role of governance and having the right agreement and the right uh, think shared thinking between an investment committee and your investment staff. Um, the, so it's not just horizon and governance. It's also being willing to be different, being willing to be early to spend your life building relationships, following deeply what people do. David is a student of human nature. Mm-hmm. What's also not understood is David's extraordinary partnership with Dean Takahashi and his senior staff. All of those things to me are uh, the things that I have taken away from my privileged friendship and relationship with the entire Yale staff hmm. and, and David Swenson. Let's talk about what is everybody's seemingly favorite question. Some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, investing, not re- investing. What what have you been reading lately and what would you recommend people read? So, uh, you know, I have often said that if I wrote a book about my childhood, it would be titled My Mother's Favorite Refrain, Take Your Nose Out of That Book. Oh. So I have, <laughs> I have been a uh, prolific reader all of my life. Um, 
Work-wise, uh, the, the most important books I have ever read on finance had to do with human behavior. Mm -hmm. So anything written by Kahneman, Tversky, uh, really all of the books in behavioral economics, and there are new versions of them all the time. Uh, but I would say that uh, my readings for my finance fellowship about the role of finance in society, uh, once in Golconda, a must read for any mm -hmm. financial historian to understand how human behavior and the character of the people at the time shaped the finance industry. Um, I would add to that, um, you know, my great, my most favorite readings are in moral philosophy. Um, Iris Murdoch is a is probably my most read. I have probably read more of her books than anybody else's. She's a British philosopher um, who really talks about the uh, moral dilemmas and the need to live a, a fully examined life mm -hmm. uh, and to look inward. Give at us the give us a title. What what's your what's the where would you send someone to start? Um, exploring Iris Murdoch's work. The Good Apprentice, um, okay. easily my my favorite story. Um, but my on my bedside are two things that will never leave my bedside, the poetry of Mary Oliver and Rilke's uh, letters to a young poet, uh, Rilke's letters. And the most important part about what Rilke wrote, the motto of my life is live the questions. Um, it's not about the answers. It's really the beginning of wisdom is knowing what questions to ask. And that author is? Rilke. Spell that. R-I-L-K-E. Letters to a Young Poet. That, by the way, more questions come in about books from people because people are looking for, hey, I'm looking for someone to give me some guidance. There's so many books. Which which way to go, young poet? Um Let's talk about what's changed since you've joined the industry. What do you see as the major shifts? And uh, is this for better or worse? So um, I joined the industry in the mid-'80s, and uh, venture capital, private equity, um, leverage loans, private markets, private credit, these were all things that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, the disintermediation of capital, the disappearance of all the financial intermediaries has really turned asset owners into capital allocators at a very profoundly different level over the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so I think the fundamental role of the asset owner has changed. And I love to see the movement led by Keith Ambixier in Canada and others across the Canadian European pension plan on sustainability, on mm -hmm. finding ways of using the power of the purchasing power that they have to really think about the importance of investing in ways that ensure sustainability in society. So I'd say the role of the asset owner, the continued uh, increase in capital formation and really um, use of capital to more and more productive purposes in society. Financial inclusion, a tremendous, so this is the democratization of mm. finance. And so fintech, a tremendous shift. So look, the last 30 years have seen these seismic shifts. And by far, 
bringing more savers to be able to invest their capital in productive ways is the role that the asset management industry plays. I have to tell you that there is a dark side to the story too okay. that worries me. And that's something that Gerald Epstein at Columbia called financialization. Mm -hmm. Finance, which, which has been going on now for decades. For decades. And at, almost parallel path with the developments mm -hmm. I just described, where finance has been used by the financiers for their own uh, privilege, for their own profits, and not for society. And look, I am not, I am a fundamental free market capitalist. I really believe in the power of capitalism and free markets to improve lives. But this has gone on for way too long, and the lack of transparency into fees, the lack of a responsibility that many, many in finance feel to share, you know, simply charging reasonable fees mm -hmm. for their for what has been very average and mediocre performance by the industry as a whole. Th that would be the darker elements. But at at its core, I think the changes have been positive and again come to the centrality of finance in society. So I have you you hinted at something in the last answer I have to ask you about Keith Amelacher, am I pronouncing Keith Ambexer. Ambexer, mm -hmm. I can't read my own handwriting. At Canada, we really haven't talked about impact investing or ESG investing. How do you see that developing? How significant of a shift is that uh, looking forward in the next decade or two? Full disclosure, my husband teaches the impact investing classes at Yale. And by the way, in describing my mentors, my, I am married to my greatest mentor in the, in the world. So I am what's uh, your, talk, what's, talk about fortunate. What's your husband's name? His name is Bo Hopkins. Bo and, Hopkins. And he is an adjunct professor at Yale um, and has really help develop and encourage kids uh, to think about social enterprise, and which really is one of the many guises of impact investing. Um, I am a, I have followed that part of the industry for a very long time. Um, we have a growing and thriving uh, thought leadership, ways of portfolio construction around sustainability, environment, social, and governance issues. We have an increasing group of clients and pers prospective clients who are asking us about that. Hmm. From our family clients who are very interested in impact investing and really increasing the direct investment component of their socially conscious, uh, socially sensitive or sustainable investing to our faith-based institutions and our endowments and um, foundations. And so we have a very uh, thoughtful way, we think, of building these portfolios. I will say that so far um, we have had more interest than actual commitment of capital. Mm -hmm. And our belief is not to be dogmatic, but to really meet our clients where they are on these issues. Mm -hmm. That's not a cop-out. That's simply saying that there are investors who would like to invest to maximize return and then use that maximized return for social good. And there are investors who want to uh, express their desire for social good through their investing. Both of those things are legitimate in our point of view, but we hope to stand out as an institution that has found a way to, in, to identify productive uses of capital in credit, in equities, which are not 
secondary to the return generation need that our clients have. So what do you do outside of the office to relax or, or just to unwind? Look, I am a, I, I spend a lot of time with the finance leadership fellows. So I, I am co-chair of the, of the overseers board. I'm a moderator at the Aspen Institute. So I really spend a lot of time with leaders in all, you know, walks of life at Aspen, helping them engage and think about their contribution, their role in society. Uh, I am a meditator. For the last 10 years, I have deepened and built a meditation practice that really creates the self-awareness and the sense of how I engage and this notion that things are impermanent and things are interrelated. Mm -hmm. Really, for me, from a leadership perspective, in building a a high-performing partnership culture at uh, Hurdle Callahan, I bring all of those values. I talk about my meditation practice with the entire firm to talk about the way I see human interaction and collaboration and why you know, you asked me what I was reading now. I'm reading two books. I always read more than one book at a time. Hillbilly Elegy is one, but the other is Sapiens, which I highly recommend to anybody. And this notion that uh, that Harari has in this book about, no, it's not our our enterprising nature as humans that set us apart. It is our ability to collaborate. Yes, what an extraordinary way of thinking about why we have succeeded as a species. The the subsequent book, Homo Deus, is a little darker than Sapiens. If 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 you when you he, get, I didn't even know he had a successive book. Oh, it book. came out a year ago. Um, yeah. It's really picks up where Sapiens left off. Only it's looking forward instead of back. It's um. I mean, look, even Sapiens, he looks at agriculture as, hey, you know, we were just happy-go-lucky hunter-gatherers, but then agriculture, that's where we exchanged diseases, and that's where we right. had back-breaking work. I, I'm not sure I fully buy yeah. It's a fascinating yes. book, but it has the those elements of darkness really bleed into the next, the follow-up. If you like Sapiens, try Homo Deus. I it's really will. thank you. Because Sapiens is, is a fascinating book. You don't have to agree with his whole Correct. positions, but it's certainly stimulating. It's and I, I just love the way he puts physics, chemistry, and biology in the beginning into these big arcs of frameworks about how to think about different things. R- really, really quite quite fascinating. Couldn't agree more. Um, let's get to uh, my two favorite Questions uh, that, of course, we ask all of our guests. If a millennial or someone who's just (laughs) getting out of college were to come to you and say, hey, I'm interested in a career in finance, what sort of advice would you give them? So I have a millennial who just got into finance, Mm -hmm. and, of course, she uh, does not need my advice, (laughs) but the classic parent. Uh, But I would say three things. Uh, And, by the way, I love to talk to these groups, particularly young women. Um, I say three things. First, be curious. Second, be prepared. And third, build lasting relationships. Mm -hmm. Be curious for me is living the questions. I think people who are intellectually curious about finance can find that there are so many ways. Endless. To use finance in society. And I love the way millennials appear to have this pretty keen social purpose linked to whatever they seem to want to do. Many, many do, and at, at any rate, I shouldn't characterize the entire generation that way. 
And so be curious. Um, be prepared. There is just no substitute for walking in to a meeting, to a conversation with a client, to an analyst program without being prepared. And I really believe that people who think they can show up and th someone will teach them stuff is just not the right attitude. Mm -hmm. And finally, this notion of build lasting relationships. I have found when I look back that yes, perhaps my technical skills, knowing this, knowing math, knowing, you know, being able to synthesize information all served me well. But what has endured the thread that I can pull through is the lasting relationships, is taking the time to understand the people I am working with and to build those relationships. Not networks, this is not a cynical view to, to using people to get ahead. It's really building relationships of trust where you can be yourself, where you can say that you were wrong, where you can ask people when you are stuck for help. Interesting, and my final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew when you began in the 1980s? That the only way to succeed in investing is playing the long game. That attempts to try and outwit the market in the short term or to time the market in the short term are very tempting, because, but, but so flawed because you think you know something. When all you know is how much you don't know. That's, that's quite fascinating. Thank you, Ranji, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Ranji Nagaswamy. She is currently CEO of Hurdle Callahan. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up or down on Apple iTunes to see, or Bloomberg, or Overcast, or uh, everywhere else uh, all of our this podcast can be found to see any of the other 150 or so such conversations that we've had. I've been saying 150 for weeks because I'm only looking at what's already out there. Um, so we may go through a run of 150 over time. But as you folks who listen to this see, there's a different one posted every week. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the team of folks who help us put together uh, this broadcast every week. Um, Medina Parwana is my audio engineer slash recording engineer. Taylor Riggs uh, helps us out with production and booking. Michael Batnick is head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.